Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. What's interesting is that even though digital technology has made a lot of things in effects work easier and has allowed us to intensify effects, almost every single contemporary effects technology is an outgrowth of something from analog. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions, the fascinating history of inventions, the strange, the weird, the unusual history of inventions. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very, very much for your company. Today, we're going to be talking about the invention of cinema special effects and reveal some of the secrets behind movie magic. From stop motion animation to motion capture to matte painting to back projections, all that kind of stuff. Special effects, as you know, I'm sure, have advanced incredibly over the last century and have really been there since the very, very beginnings of cinema. It's an industry responsible for rapid innovation. And today on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by Julie Turnick. She's the Associate Professor of Media and Cinema Studies at the University of Illinois, who's going to walk me through some of the landmark technology in visual and digital effects. So enjoy the show. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the show. I sort of think, isn't all filmmaking special effects, given that you sort of take lots of still pictures and string them together and lo and behold, it moves. It's like a magic trick. Certainly, that's the way that a lot of people talk about it, though. At the same time, somehow special effects and visual effects have been ignored often by not just film studies, but also the viewers to a great degree, because the whole goal of much of special effects is for you not to notice them. So there's different kinds, the ones that you're very much supposed to notice that are very spectacular, and then the ones that you are absolutely not supposed to notice at all. And so it's a push-pull for attention and lack of attention to special effects. It's really interesting that, actually, just what you said. I mean, I look at sort of modern special effects, I look at sort of CGI, and they're so kind of overused now. It's a bit like eating all the chocolate cake at once. I just feel a bit sick. Because you can kind of do anything now in our sort of digital universe, the days when special effects had to be subtle and nuanced and because the technology wasn't there. I think about films like Alien... You never see the alien because it would have looked rubbish if we'd seen the alien up close. And actually, because we can't see the alien, it's a better film as a result because you have to build the alien in your imagination. And suddenly you take away the imagination, which is what I think a lot of special effects in superhero films do these days. There's nothing for you as an audience member to imagine anymore because it's just there. It's like being vomited over. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think what you're also identifying is what we might call not the best use of special effects. And Mm. so still even movies like The Batman, for example, or any recent Star Wars movie or like the Star Wars TV series, like especially The Mandalorian, they're very good at creating a kind of photoreal environment that doesn't feel too special effectsy. And so people respond to those much better because for exactly the reasons that you are saying is that they don't feel like they are full of special effects, even though they have yes. thousands and thousands and thousands of effect shots. I'm terribly old. My sort of movies for me, the movies that changed my life were the films of the late 70s and 1980s, I suppose. The original Star Wars trilogy, which had the beautiful kind of matte paintings, which was sort of special effects. That was sort of enough to blow my mind. Film purists thought that they were way, way... They said the same thing that you just said about CGI. It's like, oh, they're way too full of special effects. Interesting, yeah. I've gone off topic already. We'll come on to matte paintings, what they mean, and all these different kinds of special effects. We'll sort of define those as we go along. That was my rant over, actually. So, okay, given we can disregard this idea of all film being a special effect, we know that. How would you, as an academic, define the term special effects? Well, there's different ways or different frames that you can put around special effects. From the industry standpoint, special effects actually technically are physical effects. If you look at credits in a contemporary movie and you'll see special effects, and that is all of the boards breaking and gunshot squibs. They don't really do that anymore. They, it's all digital. So prop stuff. Prop stuff. Like in-camera, on-set, physical things. Whereas visual effects are anything that's done post-production, basically, or with a significant post-production element. And so Mm -hmm. the term special effects has been in flux, actually, since... It was coined in the, we'll say the 20s, pretty much, when previously cinematographers did all of the effects work. And so they didn't have a special person to do various mat work and superimpositions and transitions. It was just the cinematographer who did that. And so then once the industry started defining a particular job for that, then they started being called special effects artists. And we tend to think of special effects as the result is what is special. It's like, here's something spectacular that's different from the kind of regular shooting, but it's as much the people who are producing it are special people needed for these kind of shots. And so initially, that's what when people talked about special effects, they are talking about both the special material and the special people to produce it. And then eventually, the jobs kind of split up and we started referring to visual effects artists. I tend to refer to them as special visual effects artists because I think the specialness of their labor is important to highlight because the industry, that's a long digression, but the industry does everything it can to kind of keep the visual effects industry a week because you know when you see those credits at the end of movies they're full of thousands and thousands of people who all need living wages and the less that the industry can pay them the better crikey we've got into some union politics already we haven't even started the podcast yet i mean they're not unionized that's the problem well there you go actually i should point out for UK listeners, I've worked in America on films, and we have very different rules and regulations. The unions are very sort of strong in filmmaking and television in America. So, But I'm going to park the union and the politics aside for one moment. I think it's fair to say that as long as we've had cinema, we've had special effects. And I suppose when I think of the first visual special effects in cinema, I think of the famous Georges Méliès, Man in the Moon. You might have seen it, dear listener, the kind of black and white moon with a rocket sticking out of its eye and the moon has a face. Is that special effect one or can we go even further back? 
It's about as early as it gets. In the earliest days of uh, cinema in 1895, talk about your earlier question of, is all cinema a special effect? There's the kind of longstanding observation that people had about the Lumiere brothers, The Baby's Breakfast, which is a famous film where you know there's a couple, they are feeding the baby its breakfast. And what people were mostly amazed about was the wind blowing the leaves behind them because they'd never seen such a thing. And then almost immediately they were doing reverse action shots as well where they show the people building the wall and then they show it backwards and it looks like the wall is falling over and people are like, oh, wow, it's amazing. But then Melias comes in and he was a magician. He was a stage magician. And so he was interested in seeing what he could do with the cinema that could extend his stage act. And so there's a story that he always tells, and it's probably apocryphal, but it's a nice story anyway, that he was shooting in, I think it was the Place de l'Opera in Paris, and the camera jammed. And when it started up again, a carriage appeared to have turned into a hearse you know, when he developed the film. And so he's like, oh, what a great effect. You can turn a lady into a skeleton. You can turn a devil into a lady. (laughs) And these are actual examples. And so he also, if you've seen the movie Hugo, it's a relatively accurate representation of what Elias' studio looked like. So he had a big glass studio with these giant miniatures, we call them miniatures or models, like the big moon face guy. And through a substitution splice, the rocket moves towards him and then appears to be in the guy's eye. Or he did this great thing called the one-man band where Melias himself appears through these superimpositions, appears to play all the instruments in the band. And so it's like multiple Meliases all doing these tricks. And so he's the guy who's most often credited with these things, but there are other people in. Sagoda de Chamon is another guy who is very prolific in doing really interesting effects tricks. Actually, now I've come to think about it, is it the beheading of Mary, Queen of Scots? I think from the 1800s, there's a famous scene. It's got to be like one of the earliest, you know, horse running or train entering station as the kind of early cinema. There was a scene, I forget what film it's in, but they chop off her head. The execution of Mary the Queen oh, Scots. there we go. <laughs> okay, great. And her head falls off and it's like, wow, it's a magic trick. It doesn't look like a magic trick. And it's sort of, yeah. And like Melias never pretended really that anything was naturalistic or that it was... Well, yeah, there you go. Now, now we get into some interesting, you know, because cinema, I suppose we always think of naturalism, but actually special effects turns naturalism into magic realism and political cinema. I suppose another kind of early special effect from around about that time, the beginnings of cinema, Battleship Potemkin, Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin, of course, at the very end of the film where the flag is raised and it's hand-painted red as this sort of political early Soviet cinema, if anyone's familiar with that film. We can call that an early special effect for a different kind of, creates a different kind of meaning, doesn't it? Yeah, and hand-coloured frames where the version in the Potemkin is actually a fairly simple version. You can see movies from much, much earlier that have really elaborate hand-applied colour. And there's also tinting and toning, of course. And some people wonder actually why cinema went black and white in the 20s, because it was so commonly there was colour added in some way in the first two decades of the cinema. Oh, no, you know, this is going to turn into a terrible podcast because we're going to go into all these rabbit holes of like really interesting film theory and the creation of the mise-en-scene. i tell you what we'll do, just so my producer doesn't freak out and this turn into like a 10-hour epic film discussion. I've got a list of different kinds of what we call special effects that get thrown around and perhaps we can sort of name them together and see how they work. So actually, the classic, talk whilst we're on early cinema, 
stop motion. What do we mean by stop motion? Stop motion is when the filmmaker points the camera at, we'll use the example of King Kong, even though that's a little later. They have built a armature that is jointed that can be posed and posed very precisely. So it'll hold its pose. And then King Kong was covered with rabbit fur. And so you can actually see the thumbprints of the animators. If you look carefully when you watch King Kong, which is charming. And so then the camera points at the King Kong model takes a single still photo and then they change the pose and they don't do 24 frames per second because that would be too cumbersome, but they do do about probably 14 frames per second. And so you can imagine even, you know, a minute of King Kong is going to take hours and hours and hours and days and weeks. And this is basically all animation. Traditional animation is that. For me, the great classic stop motion film, Ray Harryhausen, in um, Jason and the Argonauts. God, I love Jason and the Argonauts. And the thing is, even when you watch Jason and the Argonauts and Ray Harryhausen with, with great legend in, in stop motion cinema, you can see the slight jerkiness of the models as they move. But it didn't matter when you're a kid watching this stuff and it's like, wow, that was incredible. Until the 80s, that was really the only way you could get creature animation in a movie. Now we're so used to CGI creatures of various kinds and like hundreds of them on the screen at once. Mm all being animated, stop motion was really the only way to do creature animation for decades and decades and decades. And then they did some refinements in the 80s called go motion. This is Phil Tippett is the guy who's most associated with that technique where it's still the same technique in terms of pointing the camera and taking individual pictures, except for there's a kind of motorized element to the model where you open the shutter and move the model while the shutter's open, and so you get a motion blur. And so what mm. makes the motion look realistic is the fact that it looks like live action. That's kind of how we see motion through the human eye. You see a bit of blur. Camera sees motion. I guess the problem with traditional stop motion is it seems a bit jerky because you don't have that blurring between shots. And then go oh, motion, which it's used in Star Wars in the chess game, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, okay. And also yeah. Empire Strikes Back, the big battle on Hoth is all go motion. And then also famously in Robocop and Starship Troopers. So those aren't all go motion creatures, but they are a, a number of them in there. Great. So we've done stop motion. I recommend Ray Harryhausen and the skeleton scene, the famous skeleton scene in Jason the Argonauts. It still freaks me out, actually. There's something really creepy about it. And we've done go motion. We mentioned this word matte, matte painting. We talked about hand tinting of colour in, in early cinema. But matte painting, M-A-T-T-E, is something else. And again, for me, I always think of matte painting. I'm transported back to American 1970s cinema. I think of Raiders of the Lost Ark and I think of the original Star Wars trilogy. Just talk us through what matte painting is. Well, the simplest version of a matte painting is say you need a background with like a castle, for example. You're making a medieval film and you need... Wizard of Oz. Yes, Wizard of Oz. That's a very good example. They're not going to build an Emerald City and as they're going on the yellow brick road, in the background is the Emerald City kind of rising up. And so the whole landscape the Emerald City Towers are all a painting. And then there's a small black area in the foreground where the live action element will be projected. And so that's maybe the simplest version of a matte painting, where you have the black areas that will be the live action that aren't painted, and then everything else is painted. There's also hanging mats. There's also glass mats. Those are done on the set, actually. So the kind of mats that, like Wizard of Oz, are done in post-production. They're done, you make the painting, you make the live action, and then you put them together in post-production. Whereas glass paintings, you actually have a similar scene, we'll say, for example, Hogwarts uh, on the background, and then 
you actually put the painting in front of the camera and through forced perspective, you can do it on the set in camera. So you can film the live action with the matte painting. James Cameron was using these in Terminator 2. I mean, these are hand painted. So you have artists with brushes and paint will draw in meticulous detail these background scenes. It is a great art form. Yeah, and they're not real big. I've seen some in real life and some are as small as two by three maybe and some are feet. (laughs) And then some are much bigger or something like say five by seven maybe. Most people have seen the original Rage of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones film. The very last scene where you see the Ark crated up and he wheels it down this warehouse with other crates that look identical and the camera sort of pulls back to reveal millions and millions of crates in this vast expanse infinity building. And obviously we understand the meaning of what that is. But that was just a painting. There was no building. Someone had painted those and and did they film it in shot or was it done post-production? That probably, I don't think that was a glass painting. In fact, I've seen images of it and it was a traditional matte painting with the black area down the middle where the guy is wheeling the ark in the box to be put into the warehouse. And so it's very similar to the way that I described the Wizard of Oz. And so there's just a small strip of black where the live action is added in post-production of the frame as a matte painting. Has the artistry of matte painting gone now? Now we have CGI. Presumably it's incredibly labour-intensive. But is it gone? Is anyone doing matte paintings anymore? I hope they are. One hears about in a kind of nostalgic way, but there's not an industry of matte painting anymore, of of like oil on canvas. But all of those matte painters of the traditional kind transitioned to digital environments eventually. And so most of those people didn't lose their jobs. They weren't replaced by computer people. They just learned how to do that on the computer. And so now these days people are starting on the computer. They're not starting with oil painting. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war, beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses. At this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's gonna come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Bullfords were bad. But when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes. When we're talking about sort of backdrops, which has become ubiquitous actually during the pandemic, because here we all are on Zoom and what have you with our green screens behind us so we can have fantastic backdrops and we can sort of have superimposed images of whatever we want. So the green screen for those, or the blue screen, I suppose, where was the first green screen? Who came up with that idea? As far as green and blue screen, exactly. And by the way, they're basically the same. It just depends on 
what your dominant colors you're using. Let me start a little bit further back. What was called traveling mats or color differentiation mats were black and white. And John Fulton was the guy at Universal who was the person credited most strongly with this effect. And so when you watch The Invisible Man, the 1930s Invisible Man, if it was Claude Rains or if it was his double, I'm not sure, but he's wearing like a black suit for the parts that are supposed to be invisible. I actually have to go back earlier. I'm sorry, because this is where the blue and green screen comes in. So there's a guy called Frank Williams, the Williams process. And when you watch The Lost World, the silent dinosaur movie, with also Willis O'Brien as the animator, you see some dinosaurs that have been matted into London because the dinosaurs are attacking London at the end. And you see a kind of light white matte line around it. And that is from Frank Williams's The Williams Process, which was a traveling matte technique that did black and white as the way to differentiate the foreground and the background or the two spaces of the film. There was another two guys, the Dunnings. They invented a process called the Dunning Process that used blue and orange. They actually had blue and orange lights on the set that it's very complicated, but it allowed the camera's dynamic range to differentiate, this is gonna be the foreground and this is gonna be the background. Because this guy's bathed in orange light, we can pull him out and so we can put him in another background. Got it. And so this is where, because even the black and white camera's dynamic range, I don't 100% understand it, so I'm not going to try, but blue was the color that it could see with the sharpest edges because Uh you want the edges to be as clean as possible because it's very hard to, in post-production, marry the two pieces of film. Very often when you look at it done badly, you can see the kind of fuzzy edges around it. It's not always badly. It's often that there are very few people who could do it really well. There's a lot of technical difficulty in doing it. And so that's why one sees matte lines until the digital age because it's Mm. just very hard to do. And so the blue was the color that was determined to be the color that is easiest to pull the mat from. And so we can talk about rear projection and front projection next if you want, but for much of the 20th century, the color differentiation process was considered too difficult and too challenging for most productions. It was kind of too mm-hmm. fiddly, basically. It was expensive, it was time-consuming, and there were very few people who could do it well. And so then front projection, or rear projection and front projection came in. Which kind of does what it says on the tin. Rear projection, you would actually project onto a screen. I'm thinking of the taxi scene in On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. Car scenes where you see the background all moving. And I'm bringing it up now because it actually becomes important later in contemporary production. So for a good 50 years, people weren't really using blue and green screen. And then they picked it up again in the 70s for Star Wars because they thought that rear projection looked too fakey. And so they needed something that was going to be more naturalistic. Plus they have all these ships in the space that they need to composite together. And so that is when blue screen started coming back into the cinema in the 70s in this kind of intensified time of more effect shots and more elements within effect shots. And that's happening in Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and then into the 70s and the 80s. And then we go into the example of Superman where he's got a blue costume. And so blue screen is terrible for Superman. (laughs) And so they needed a different color. And so they went for the next best color differentiation color, which was green. And so now more or less blue and green screen are interchangeable. That's my favorite fact ever now. The reason we have green screen is we can thank Christopher Reeve's suit. I love that. So it was blue, so it was, oh, crikey, we'll have to go green. I'm sure there are other reasons, but I like that. Here's one I still don't quite understand. I've done lots of filming. 
And I still don't really quite understand how motion control works. And I've done things with motion control. It's basically where you have a camera set up, it'll move, and then you can repeat it exactly the same so you can do clever things. That was a terrible explanation. Please explain it better. (laughs) Okay, so there were a couple of different people in the 70s who were working on motion control. And the reason that people wanted to develop it was that traditionally, when you're doing traveling mats, you can't move the camera. The camera must be stock still. It has to be bolted down because... In order to make the pieces fit together, say the foreground, the background, to be able to fit them together in post-production with optical printer, the elements have no wiggle, have no movement at all. And so for the whole of cinema history up until the 70s, you couldn't move the camera during a composite shot at all. And so the motion control allowed the camera to appear to be moving while at the same time having a composite shot. And so actually John Dykstra is the guy who is the visual effects supervisor on Star Wars. He invented a camera that he called the Dykstra Flex. But a couple other people did it before. There was a commercial that did it before. And also Douglas Trumbull was working on it for Close Encounters. But Dykstra gets the credit. And so you can imagine with all these ships flying around in Star Wars and even the jump to hyperspace and all that sort of thing, that they really wanted to be able to have the kind of dynamism of the dogfights in space that George Lucas wanted. And so here's how it works. Say you've got a X-Wing fighter. They put it on a stick. (laughs) All right. So the X-Wing fighter is like there on a stick with a blue screen behind it. And they have a camera that is attached to a computer, a very simple computer in the case of the 70s, that records the motion data. And so the camera will sweep by the X-Wing fighter and it'll look like the X-Wing fighter is moving really fast when in fact the X-Wing fighter is still, it's the camera that's moving. But the data that the camera is recording then because that's just one element. So the X-Wing fighter is just one element and you also have to have the laser beams that are being shot at the X-Wing fighter. You have to have the star background that is also moving. And so you've got several layers of material that need to be composited together. And so when you have the data of the movement, you can do that with every single... Because it's done with a computer, it's exactly the same every time. So you just add another layer with exactly the same movement. So something like a dolly shot, you'd have a camera on the track and then move it. Okay, brilliant. There's a whole other podcast we could be doing about, you know, because obviously in the sort of digital era, it's kind of completely changed everything. Digital special effects, as we sort of said at the beginning, have transformed the way we do everything. The one thing I should talk about is when we have, you know, actors, you know, they'll be filming in a green screen and they've got little balls on their heads, tracking stuff. And I suppose Lord of the Rings and films like that have become the best examples of that that people might be familiar with. But maybe we could just touch on that and what's going on there and how does Andy circus transform himself into Gollum. Just very briefly, I will say that what's interesting is that even though digital technology has made a lot of things in effects work easier and has allowed us to intensify the effects, almost every single contemporary effects technology is an outgrowth of something from analog technology. Exactly. So this is not new, even though the digital bit is new. Digital makes it easier, makes it more streamlinable, but it didn't invent anything. Yeah, with motion capture, what was the old version? So motion capture where Andy Serkis has little balls on his head and he transforms into Gollum. What was that in the 70s? Go on YouTube right now and see Fleischer Brothers cartoons. The Fleischer Brothers who did Betty Boop, most famously probably, Coco the Clown, and also the Disney Snow 
Snow White also used, the Fleischer brothers have the patent for what was called rotoscope. And they would record, in the case of Snow White, or in the case of Betty Boop, why don't we say, Betty Boop, an actress performing a song, and then as an animation technique, I should have said uh, specifically. So the Fleischer brothers weren't special effects people, they were animators. They were traditional animators in the way that we think of animating. And they would basically draw over the film frame, and so they would be using the reference material of the actress performing a song as Betty Boop in order to give naturalistic movement to their cartoon characters. And they have a famous one with Cab Calloway doing Minnie the Moocher. That is a famous one, which again, you can look up on YouTube right now. It's uh... I must have missed that one. <laughs> and so this was something that then Disney developed for Snow White, but then it kind of was not a super mainstream effect until digital comes in and motion capture comes in. And the people you have already identified, the Weta, Peter Jackson effects company are most associated with that effect with Golem that Andy Serkis so famously enacted, I guess you could say. And so, yes, it's the idea of having a motion sensing dots all over people's faces, wearing unitards, basically, that have motion tracking icons of various kinds mm -hmm. so that the computer can read that stuff and then they can get very subtle facial movements they get very naturalistic body movements it's funny actually it sort of brings us all the way back to where we started and so much of this is to do with aesthetics i suppose the aesthetics of early cinema and i think you know i mentioned that perhaps it's my age but certainly the blockbuster aesthetic i suppose which is something i know that you talk about of the spielbergs and the lucases you mentioned films like close encounters they were so I don't know, for me, they were the defining examples of brilliant uses of special effects that were just kind of wonderful. I'm less keen on digital special effects. And I'm not quite sure why. Is it because I'm an old fart or I'm a grumpy old man or I don't know what it is? If I just see too much realism in my special effects, do we rely on special effects too much now? The digital world has meant we can do anything. And it's that thing, if you've got all the information in the world, if you've got all the chocolate in the world, it doesn't make chocolate any nicer. I was watching one of the Jurassic Park reboots, the Jurassic World, and the thing that was bothering me was that I was like, why do these dinosaurs not look so great? They don't look special. And I think that it actually goes back to a Harryhausen, the way that Harryhausen designed shots is that he didn't just think about like, I've set up a camera and this dinosaur is just gonna kind of walk around in front of the camera and that's cool. Cause it's not mm. actually that cool just to have a kind of static shot, but he would design sequences in which here's the dinosaur doing this and there's another shot of a different angle of the dinosaur because it takes forever to do these shots. He has to really carefully plan it. And I was thinking about the original Jurassic Park as well. They had a very similar problem because they had all these giant animatronic dinosaurs and then actually only a few minutes of digital dinosaurs because that's all they could do with the technology that they had. And so they had to very carefully think about what the shots look like to get the best shot of those dinosaurs. I think that Colin Trevorrow, I don't have a feeling about him as a director. I don't know if we want to include that or not, but I don't it's, think that he's not a Spielberg. You know, he doesn't think about these shots in this super dynamic way. And so it's just kind of lifeless and it has nothing to do with the CGI. It has to do with the imagination of the filmmakers. I think that's exactly it. You know, when you have limitations as an artist, that's when you create the greatest art. When you have no limitations... And the canvas is infinitely wide. It's sort of really hard to do stuff. It's like filming generally. Like, you know, now we all shoot digitally. You can just keep rolling forever. And eventually you'll get what you want. 
But in the days when we had to shoot on film, like when I first started, we were shooting television on 16 mil film. You had limited rolls of film. So you had to plan shots really carefully and actually think about what you were doing. And you didn't have time to do endless retakes. You know, you had to get it in one or two takes. And I don't know. Who knows? There's some wonderful films being made now, of course. I'm just thinking in the special effects. Hey, listen, we're running out of time. Who's your favorite filmmaker? Where do you go? I mean, you're a film academic. And I wonder where, crikey, where's your sort of period of specialty or your period of great love in cinema. I'm just interested. Well, what's funny is that probably, weirdly, the classical studio era. (laughs) So 40s Hollywood. I love the Douglas Sirk melodramas, and that's just my happy place. I mean, I enjoy special effects blockbusters, but I don't think that one should study as a fangirl, you know? It's like, I enjoy that stuff, but I'm not like a Star Wars fangirl who goes to conventions and things. I enjoy them very much. I want to emphasize that. My real fun is going to festivals of silent film, like the Bologna Festival. I don't know if you know that where it's mostly old stuff that is rare that you don't get to see so yeah i'm with you i like german silent cinema love it and also german new wave cinema i'm herzog all the way (laughs) (laughs) zero special effects (laughs) and american 70s but i'm fond of kind of simpson bruckheimer as well i watched top gun again the other day there's not that many special effects in top gun it's all action sequences yeah almost every single plane in that movie is miniature Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a Uh, company, USFX, that doesn't exist anymore, but they were kind of an offshoot of ILM in the Bay Area. You can see the old DVDs. They had special features that show them with miniature planes. They're not tiny miniatures. They're like, I don't know, probably 10 feet across or something. But no, almost all that is very good effects work. I would say, kind of in summary, that cheap special effects are always meh, but there are still plenty of movies today that are actually interesting uses of effects though fewer now. And I've got a whole thing about that in my new book about Marvel, but... (laughs) Oh, well, tell us about your new book. There's a good place to end. So you've written a book about Marvel. Okay. No, I've actually written a book about ILM. So it's about ILM. So these were the defining company. This is Industrial Light and Magic, and we can thank for the original Star Wars. Close Encounters, you mentioned earlier on, is is a far superior film to Star Wars, just so you know. (laughs) Not ILM. It's not ILM, but it's a better film. Yeah, no, so the book is trying to understand the contemporary style of blockbuster realism and where it comes from. And my thesis is that it comes from ILM and it is a style that they initiated in the 70s and then by the domination of the effects business through the past four to five decades that all other companies had to adopt the ILM style, which is a very particular kind of style that is based in 70s cinematography. So part Mm -hmm. of my argument is that it doesn't have anything to do with what the eye sees in real life in terms of naturalism, it is what the camera cues us as seeing as real. And so part of my argument is that when Disney took over Lucasfilm in 2012, is that ILM then kind of becomes part of the Disney machine that Marvel is included in, and that the Marvel style, which is actually kind of taken from the ILM style, is a kind of simplified version that they were able to turn into a formula because they've got, you know, however many three to four movies a year that they have to churn out and they have something like 20 effects companies on every single Marvel movie. And so in order to have a kind of consistent style, they've taken a version of the ILM style and kind of streamlined it into, I would say, a somewhat lifeless formula. I love your book already. I haven't read it yet, but I have opinions about this and I'm going to keep them to myself. Otherwise, we're going to be here all day. <laughs> I love the big ILM style. I know exactly what you mean. I understand that aesthetic and I share your opinions, I think. We're going to have to leave it there. But when's your book out? When can people buy it? It should be out in the next few months. So I think Amazon says July now. 
great. And its name is? The Empire of Effects. The Empire of Effects. Oh, Julie, it's been fantastic talking to you. I could talk for hours, but I can't because I'm going to get into trouble. <laughs> but thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me. So that's it for this episode. Thank you very much to Julie for that fascinating tour through the history of movie special effects. Absolutely fascinating. Don't forget to hit subscribe if you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget to listen to all of our other episodes too. And don't forget we've got different episodes coming out every Wednesday and Sunday. And I very much look forward to your company once again for those. I will see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.